0: Harper's Magazine is proud to sponsor the Urban Justice Center's upcoming Night Out Gala on June 12th. Clive Thompson will moderate an exclusive conversation on surveillance and privacy with one of their newest projects. The UJC's unique model of accelerating new advocacy efforts puts them on the cutting edge of social justice year after year. Join them for a night of drinks, music, food, and dancing for a great cause. For tickets, visit their website, urbanjustice.org. Use the code HARPERS, all caps, for a $25 discount. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the web editor. In addition to her novels, Marilyn Robinson has enjoyed a long career as a nonfiction writer and has grappled with questions about beauty, fear, Fox News, and nuclear disaster, among others. In the June issue, Robinson writes about the continuation of poverty, considering the rise of austerity and automation on all aspects of economic and social life. It's a fascinating and dense essay, and if you sometimes get lost in the breadth of the references and the reflections she offers, this episode is for you. I spoke with Christopher Beha, executive editor of Harper's, who edited the piece, to examine Robinson's ideas and the ideas of the writers and economists she cites. Marilyn Robinson, probably best known as a fiction writer, but she also has written a lot of nonfiction. Um, And in that nonfiction, she does return to original sources and and part of that is an interest in rethinking why we believe this or that and I mean reading this I was sort of struck by how that's a way to sort of get around making points within the sort of the set ideological framework that we have now so can you for you I mean how does it sort of fit into her other interests as a nonfiction writer
1: I guess the thing that everybody knows about Marilyn Robinson who knows Marilyn Robinson even if you have never read a word of hers, is that um, she is a practicing Christian, So, shall we say. She's a religious writer, and she's one of the few major mainstream, uh, quote-unquote, American writers who is also a, a um, religious believer and, and writes in that mode. And in particular, she is a Protestant Christian, and um, I think it's an important element of Protestantism or of the Reformation was the doctrine of, uh, of sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone. Um, <clears throat> with the beginning of the Reformation, the idea is you are no longer going to rely on a church tradition or a clerical hierarchy to tell you what is or is not the truth, and what in particular what is or is not in the Bible. You're going to go and look at the words themselves. So, so this idea, which holds great sway within Robinson's religious tradition, she has also um, brought on board to a lot of her more general intellectual work. So again, uh, linking this up with religion, one of the things as a nonfiction writer that she is most well known for is uh, she writes a lot about Calvin. And her, her view is that most people know about Calvin and the Calvinists, and in particular, the American Calvinists who were the Puritans by way of either historical caricature, or at best, they may know about that strain of Protestantism through something like Max Weber's work uh, in the spirit of Protestantism. And what she says is, you should go back to the scripture, in this case, the scripture meaning Calvin's own writing. So her project so 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 and and she writes uh, about these themes in her fiction too. So in in all of her work I think the urge is go back to the original source, actually look at what it says. Don't rely on secondary sources, don't rely on people's reputations, don't rely on a general intellectual climate that tells you that some people have good ideas and some people don't, etc.
0: Yeah after reading this, I was motivated to return to Capital, Marx's Capital, which is where she was drawing from for this essay, um, and part of the reason why Capital, one of the ideas about Capital is that, oh, it's so hard to read, and that, you know, a teenager who loves the Communist Manifesto is not going to be able to finish Capital, and that's why you always see it at, like, your local used bookstore, on unread, um, but the way that he writes is very, you know, proceeds very a priori, and you have to sort of read the whole thing in order to understand it. And I feel like that's sort of the approach that she adopted here. So I guess, does she, you know, as someone who edited this, I guess, does she expect us to have already read the original source to sort of be familiar with people like Henry George? Or does she expect us to like, look it up or yeah. What, what is sort of the expectation of how the reader will interact with this?
1: My best guess, this isn't something that I've uh, talked with Marilyn about, but is in keeping with um, what she writes about, she she would expect um, for readers to treat her text the way she treats secondary text, which is an introduction to certain people and an invitation to go back to the primary source. So what she outlines here, you know, the, the essay takes in some in a sense the form of an intellectual journey mm-hmm. dating back to the mid 80s she was doing research on this nuclear plant in England called Sellafield um, she actually wrote a piece about it for uh, Harper's in 1985. It eventually was published as a book. And in researching the plant and seeing the economic impulses for some of the behavior there, she decided to start basically educating herself in the history of economics. So she started reading Marx. And then she saw that Marx refers a lot to the classical British economists, Adam Smith, Ricardo, Malthus, uh, James Mill, etc., And so instead of taking Marx's word on these writers, she went back and read them. And it was in educating herself about um, late 18th through 19th century economics that she saw this name Henry George coming up a lot, and so she went and read uh, his book, uh, "Progress and Poverty," uh, as well, and I think that's what she would hope her readers would do is not say, "Oh, I've read this Marilyn Robinson essay about Henry George, and now I know about George, but to take that as an invitation to go look at his work
0: okay, so. This podcast is a bit of a cheat then. <laughs> we're trying to get our, we're doing, we're doing some sort of a secondarying here, but.
1: And I'll uh, cop to not having read George, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we're all on the same okay, page. Okay, good,
0: good. But I mean, but you are sort of familiar with maybe like teasing out these things or interacting with texts, older texts that are maybe not building brick by brick, but they're sort of, going from one idea to another, and, you know, how do you read that as someone who maybe isn't familiar with Henry George or whoever?
1: Yeah, I, I think part of the way that Robinson proceeds here appropriately for um, a journey that sort of starts and marks is um, what you would call dialectically. there There isn't a, a, a an A to B to C progression where uh, one point is established and the next one is built on it. She is talking about the way different traditions interact with each other. I mean, some people are going to be f- very familiar with these traditions and have some sense of what she's talking about, and other people are gonna be a bit out to sea with them. But one thing that she does, uh, which I think is very valuable, is she puts herself in some way in the position of the reader in the sense that, as I was saying before, she, it, it's structured as an intellectual journey. So she tells she begins talking about Sellafield, she talks about how that led her to read Marx, she talks about how reading Marx led her to read some of the classic. British economists. She talks about how the the reading between the two of them led to reading of George. And, and in the process, you know, she brings the reader to some degree through these ideas. But it is, I mean, she's she can be a very dense writer, but even a writer who packs in as much as she does, she's covering a lot of material here. So you know, there are going to be people who are really just introduced as names to stand in for whole traditions of ideas. And knowing Robinson's attitude about this, I, I, I think she would definitely not want, you know, her few sentences to be in any way the last word on any of these people.
0: Sure. You know, this was originally a speech that she gave, and it's been sort of changed into this long-form essay. So could you discuss that process and, like, editing it and sort of making decisions about what was included, what wasn't included?
1: Sure. So I, I feel somewhat beholden to mention in particular that this essay was adopted from uh, Robinson's Joanna Jackson Goldman Memorial Lecture on American Civilization and Government at the New York Public Library, um, which she made in February. Robinson gives a lot of talks she is very practiced in what i guess you would call homiletics she gives she she gives homilies and and she does this in her own congregationalist church in iowa and she does it in various other places she is a a wonderful rhetorician and Lately, I think that's what most of her nonfiction comes from. So her most recent books, you know, she has several books that are more conventional essay collections, but her most recent books are all essays that began life as talks, and this is one of those. There's certainly, you know, some things that need to get smoothed out where, you know, you can make certain points with emphasis and spoken language that isn't necessarily there on the page. And so we had to clarify some things. In the original essay, there was a great deal more about the Calvinist tradition and about American Puritanism. And in fact, she had a sort of self-effacing joke uh, about the fact that she can't talk about any subject without bringing the Puritans in which I have no doubt got a very good laugh among this crowd. But we decided to to cut all of that out, or or most of it out. And beyond that, you know, she's she's a wonderful writer. She's one of the best alive, I think. So mostly as an editor, your job is to stay out of her way.
0: Yes. Again, without reducing Henry George to like a blurb and, you know, not in the hopes that all of our dear listeners would go out and read this stuff on their own, make their own decisions about it. 19th century in American intellectual life was marked by a great deal of, you know, like sort of the emergence of the progressive movement and the, the sort of the huge changes that happened because of the industrial revolution, the redistribution of the population from rural to primarily in cities moving away from agriculture, that sort of stuff, it prompted a big change in thought. So could you talk about what that milieu was like and then also maybe a little bit about who Henry George was and why he was very popular?
1: If I can give it a bit of the context that Robinson gives it, I'd say this. The sort of modern economic tradition, Anglo-American, but just sort of Western economic tradition in general, begins with these British economists writing around the time of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and in the emergence of the capitalist era, and are writing in many ways defenses of this sort of nascent capitalist era, but one that tries to establish laws of economic behavior that are in some way generally applicable and permanent in the same way that the scientific laws of nature are. And so you get things like laws of supply and demand or things that um, Robinson talks about are the iron law of wages. You get things like the labor theory of value. You get things like the law of rent, which was Ricardo. And so, so the idea was that this is a human behavior naturally accords to these laws. And then you get as it is clear going through the 19th century that the capitalist system is a great engine for making a small number of people very, very wealthy um, and keeping a great number of people in a permanent state of poverty. You get a lot of people questioning whether or not these laws really have to govern behavior. Uh, Hence, the framing of Robinson's essay, is poverty necessary? You get a lot of people basically saying there's always going to be a poor underclass. Um, In the case of Malthus, you know, people sort of know about his views on population, but a key portion of that is just what he argued was you're going to have increases of productivity, agricultural productivity, that allow you to feed your population, but the population is then going to expand. And so you're basically always going to have People who are hungry, and in in his view, that was a law of population growth that was a, a sort of natural law. So then you had people, Marx in particular, arguing against the capitalist system, but as uh, Robinson says, basically accepting that those were in fact laws, at least the laws of the capitalist system, and so you needed. A true revolutionary change in the system. And in Robinson's view, the cost to that was it actually came to reify a lot of these views about these things just being how human societies naturally organize themselves. So I think what George then coming in the late uh, 19th century represents for Robinson is some kind of third way. You know, and this is the thing that we're kind of always looking for is is a third (laughs) way, Yeah. Um, And what's interesting about George is how supremely popular he was towards the end of the 19th century. His his book, uh, Poverty and Progress, um, was by many accounts the best-selling book published by an American up to that point, possibly the best-selling economics book in history up to that point. And he, his main argument had to do with the, the value that accrued to land as land became more scarce through increases of population. And he believed in uh, he thought there should be a tax on land that uh, he thought would be sufficient to pay for all government needs. This is, you know, before the federal income tax. And so, there, so so his argument was for this land tax. But his more general argument was for ways of organizing a human society so that it did not lead to such extremes of wealth and poverty, which is obviously a, a problem we're still facing.
0: Right. And there were communities that formed that were sort of Georgist that were you know aspirational progressive communities that were trying to live according to what he was saying in the essay robinson uh uses the term political economy and again because she's not she's not defining it she's just using it sometimes unclear of what she means by that so i guess in your understanding of what she's written as a person who has sort of helped guide this from speech uh, you know a talk that was given to something that was written. How how would you define it? And I guess like a concrete example of what she means by political economy. She's
1: speaking specifically about the classical economists. She's speaking uh, uh, about Smith and Ricardo and Malthus and Mill in the early days of economics as a Uh, intellectual discipline. It was referred to as political economy. Uh, Smith, uh, of course, uh, his great work was The Wealth of Nations, and it was during a period where one thought of the economy as, uh, you know, something, there were, uh, borders were very strong then, borders in terms of trade and in terms of the movement of people. And so your economy was something that, that a nation managed in competition uh, with other nations. And so it was a, a political project Marx writes about political economy and it critiques political economy and who he is talking about are these what we now call classical economists so you know I think the tradition that, that, that uh, you could say she's referring to when she uses the term is the laissez-faire tradition the classical liberal anglo-american you know free- market economy And so what she says is you have these advocates of what she calls political economy, and we might say um, laissez-faire economics, and then you have the Marxist tradition of accepting many of the premises of these classical economists in terms of how a capitalist system necessarily must run, who then are building up an alternative to it. And then those become the two choices. And what gets shut out is the middle idea that there might be other ways of organizing a human society that is neither of those two things.
0: Right. I mean, but I would argue that, you know, Karl Marx can't speak for himself, but certainly it wouldn't it wouldn't have been his intention to sort of create this rigid alternative that seems kind of inflexible and you know that seems like only one of two choices right so i guess you know in in the essay she's talking about how you know here I'll start here. I'll just quote her. Um, for a long time, we or those of us who paid attention to such things were very inclined to think in terms of what we called ideology, which for the purposes of co- of the controversy boiled down to a political economy on one hand and a torturously articulated reaction to political economy on the other for all the shouting and shoving one paradigm governed and does still contemporary China exemplifies it perfectly. That part You know, I took a little bit of issue with that because it seems like is she lumping a planned economy in with China's numerous ongoing human rights violations and the continued existence of impoverished people in China with its approach to its political economy? Or is it simply that there is like this need to kind of demonize or create an underclass of some kind for a society to function?
1: I think what she is talking about is actually a, a, a little more broad than that, which is just the idea that um, an ideological framework rather than the needs of actual people becomes the defining feature of the economy. So it, it, China is, is, is a case where there was, you know, the A a one party rule that had a particular economic ideology and then made the conscious decision that they needed to liberalize for, you know, what were basically ideological reasons to keep for the one party to keep control of the country. So now all of these choices are made uh, still for ideological reasons, and it has not led to a great liberation of the individual humans.
0: Right. Because it is, again, there are a lot of different ideas in this essay, and it feels like Robinson ultimately comes out on the side of democracy, but certainly acknowledges the fact that de-incentivizing a liberal arts education is detrimental to a democracy and that attacking education and making citizens less aware or able to reason critically with what they're being presented with is also detrimental to a functioning democracy. So basically keep libraries open, keep schools open. Another essay, another great essay she wrote for Harper's. Um, But again, one of the things that keeps coming up throughout the essay is like Russia too and even, you know, both in its previous incarnation as the USSR and then as it exists today as sort of like a post-communist kleptocracy. So it and sometimes the way she talks about it is kind of in between those two states. So is it sort of like a total refutation of the possibility of revolution um, from our current political economic system? Or is it just like are these just sort of digs at Russia? Because it's easy to make it Russia. I
1: think the argument she's making about Russia is that for a long time, people who fall in the camp of what she would call political economy, but let's just say um, we could say neoliberals or classical uh, liberals, would point to Russia and the problems that Russia had and say, this is what happens with collectivization. And this is an argument against an economic model like that and now what she's saying is the fall of the Soviet Union has returned Russia in many ways she argues to the pre-revolutionary conditions it was in that 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 does not that's and that's happened with a a liberalizing of the economy so the point is not that the whole Soviet experiment was a failure although i suspect she would say that but that the problem in russia is not collectivization per se, because certain problems that have persisted throughout its history predated the revolution and have persisted uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union.
0: Right. But is, is that like, oh, there's a cultural problem? Or is it just like, wherever there will be people, there will be this problem?
1: I think in this case, uh, again, I, I'm a little bit putting words in Marilyn's mouth based on some things I think are implied in her work. But I think what she'd say is that the opening up of the Russian economy after the fall of the Soviet Union was driven by ideology. In this case, it was the sort of Western liberal triumphalist ideology that said that the fall of the Soviet Union was a step in the spreading of free markets throughout the world that this was, again, going back to these classical economists, this is the natural order of things. This is the way human societies, if left to their own devices, will organize themselves. And so what these post-Soviet republics all needed was a speedy transition to a liberal economy, which has been a success in some cases and less successful than others mostly
0: unsuccessful (laughs) yeah no i mean no i was just i was just curious about that because sometimes it it's unclear you know in the case of russia the united states when it was switching to a free market or a tycoon market economy the united states had promised russia like huge loans to sort of aid in this transition and then didn't pay that and so it's 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 unclear from what she's written if she's taking that into account or if it's simply she's simply using these concepts to talk about this shift. And again, like I don't expect you to necessarily have an answer for that, but it's it's sometimes it's not a criticism necessarily, but it's sometimes it's unclear what sort of, you know, historical perspective she's looking at things with.
1: One thing that I think is always a little bit present in Robinson is that she she's not an American exceptionalist or an American triumphalist, um, but she does think there is a tendency on the left, and she is very much a woman of the left herself, but on the left to to denigrate American history. And I think that this goes back to her, you know, her readings of the Puritans. She thinks there is a lot in the American tradition that is to be celebrated. That is, uh, I think, part of what attracts her about a figure like Henry George. And <clears throat> she quotes uh, someone early in the essay. She is talking about uh, what she's learned about this nuclear disaster at Sellafield in England and, and other things that are going on there. And she um, uh, is talking with an American on a flight home from one of her research trips, and she's telling them about Sellafield and one of them says, "Well, look what we did to the Indians." Right. And this is this is right up uh, in the front of the essay, and and is meant to, I think, is a is a kind of signal that part of what she is going to argue against in the essay is a what she, I think she would call a kind of a, a knee jerk anti-Americanism that exists on the left. But the point, again, is not to then be a sort of like Reaganite American exceptionalist. Mm-hmm. The point is to just say that either of those views are a form of ideology. And instead, let's look at the the tradition. And the tradition is going to, if you look you know, closely at it, it's going to have its strengths and its weaknesses. But if you begin from a a position of ideology, then you're not going to be able to see both of those. And in her view, I think we lose a lot when we see American history as, you know, first and foremost, a a history of a small, powerful elite oppressing the rest of, economically, the rest of the country and the rest of the world.
0: I I also think that American cultural imperialism is kind of insulting to other nations that, oh, you know, American culture is so strong and overpowering that there's no choice but for these poor Korean teenagers to sort of, like, get super into rock and roll, like, that's a a sort of a, a different form of cultural narcissism. But still, I mean, what's so interesting about her project is that she's sort of going through American, she's going through history, not just American history, and sort of saying, like, look at these great ideas that are just out there. But certainly, you could, you know, maybe not create a narrative, but you could sort of ascribe historical reasons or other factors as to why these ideas didn't get picked up. Like we aren't a we aren't a nation of we aren't a Georgist nation. We're the nation we are now, right? And I and I'm not always sure that she has an answer for that, or you know, maybe no one has a good answer for that.
1: Well, I think in in the case of George. The answer is in part that very soon after he died, um, the, the Constitution was amended to allow for federal income tax and um, the progressive movement of which George was a major part rejected his idea that progressive policies ought to be paid for primarily by this single tax as he called it which was a tax on land and instead instituted an income tax and ever since then we've had these fights about what the rates of the income tax should be etc cetera, etc cetera. and 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 robinson i i don't think means to defend in particular this this proposal of georgia's the single tax but what she wants to point out to contemporary readers is this problem, which is that for all our technological progress that leads to greater productivity and a very high standard of living for many people, poverty persists and it doesn't just persist, but it it seems in fact in some places to get worse, that that's a problem that People in this country have been engaged with for a long time. It's not as though you know the whole country, the, the our the whole our whole economic history has been dominated by these sort of uh, laissez-faire ideas. And then there exists this other tradition, which is this Marxist or socialist tradition that has been, you know, popular in Europe, but we've always been kind of frightened of that. That's just not an accurate picture of American intellectual history.
0: Right. And that those aren't the only two options. At the end of the essay, or towards the end of the essay, she gets into automization and this very valid point that it's easy to see where we could automize everything to the point where there are no more jobs. So who are the robots creating things for? And who are they making rich? And that this is a question that isn't science fiction, but it's, it's coming very soon.
1: The, the, the question that frames this whole essay is, one, George's question, why does poverty persist even as there is increasing wealth and increasing productivity? And is poverty necessary, as the title of the piece poses it, in the way that so many of the classical economists felt it was? And she concludes that, uh, and I'll quote her here, I, I concluded from my reading of classical economics that the creation of poverty is as fully intentional as the creation of wealth. So w- what automation, which people often fear, one prospect it offers is you know, great leisure time for everyone. The, we have this idea that is actually the kind of idea that the classical... Economists would have, which is that if robots put the working class out of work, then they're just going to starve because they're not going to have work to do. But of course, one could put it the other way and say, well, if all this value gets created automatically, then we're going to have a lot more wealth to be given to these people people who were being put out of work and they were going to have a great deal of leisure time that can be put to fruitful purpose.
0: Sure. <laughs> sure, that'll happen. Uh. But, you know,
1: it just in, in all seriousness, one of the things that, that is getting uh, – Robinson doesn't discuss this in the essay, but, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about the basic income. Right. And that's exactly this argument, right. which is that this value is going to get created – and you're going to have a class of people whose the work that they used to do in creating this value is no longer available for them to do and one very elegant solution it would seem would just be to pay them anyway and i think it's 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 easy to for, for it, it is tempting to for for us to to laugh cynically at the idea but what robinson would say is, you know, why not? And, you know, there have been times throughout our history when things have moved in the right direction. So, you know, perhaps this will be, you know, as far back as Cain. So there has been this idea that increasing productivity would lead to shorter work weeks and uh, people would have more leisure time. And that just isn't what's happened. But that doesn't mean, again, contra these classical economists, that's not due to any iron law that says that this is the way it has to be. And um, I think for Robinson, going back and looking at these, excavating these other traditions just reminds us that there are other ways of organizing things than the way that we've been doing it.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.